0: Last week in our study, we celebrated the return of the king. And so just to remind ourselves, if we put the chart back up there, we see where we are with the red arrow. The second advent of Christ, where at the conclusion of that seven-year tribulation, Jesus returns with his bride, the church, and he is victorious at the Battle of Armageddon. And how did he win this battle? With a lot of weapons and guns and stuff. By the word of his mouth, by the word of his mouth, he casts the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire. He sends Satan into the abyss for a thousand years, which is kind of a head scratcher, but um, Pastor Travis is going to unlock that for you all next week. And and then, then he ushers in his millennial reign here on the earth, where Jesus here on the earth will rule in righteousness and peace from his throne in Jerusalem. Now, I love the way John MacArthur described the millennial reign. He says, Imagine a world dominated by righteousness and goodness, a world where there is no injustice, where no court ever renders an unjust verdict, and where everyone is treated fairly. Imagine a world where what is true, right, and noble marks every aspect of life, including interpersonal relations, commerce, education, and government. Imagine a world where there is complete, total, enforced, and permanent peace, where joy abounds and good health prevails, so much so that people live for hundreds of years. Imagine a world where the curse is removed, where the environment is restored to the pristine purity of the Garden of Eden, where peace reigns even in the animal kingdom. Imagine a world ruled by a perfect, glorious ruler who instantly and firmly deals with sin. Anybody want to be a part of that? Amen. Such is the character of what we call the millennial reign of Jesus Christ here on earth. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 7, there we're going to really kind of stop at 6, but it fills in some details for us about this millennial reign. Details specifically about reign and resurrection. So, um, let me read this passage for us. We're going to start with verse 1. We kind of overlap a little bit with last week. We kind of ended with 1 through 3. We're going to start with 1 through 3 this week. It says in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Well, Father, we just continue to build with excitement as this book comes to an amazing conclusion. A conclusion which is yet to happen. A conclusion which is yet to come. But we long to be there. We long to be a part of this day. And God, we ask for your help this morning to understand there's some, some technical stuff here. Um, so help me to explain it accurately, clearly, powerfully. And then for all of us, God, would you give us ears to hear. And God, I did, you, you know the scattered nature of my brain right now. I pray that you would help me to focus and to be able to be fully present. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so as we read that passage, you may have noticed that that phrase, a thousand years, put it in yellow, it's used five times in these six verses. And actually, if we were to include verse seven, it would be six times. And I don't think that's any accident. I believe that that repetition is meant to emphasize the literal nature of Christ's physical reign here on the earth and this thing called the 1,000-year reign of the millennium. But it should come as no surprise, as many things in the book of Revelation, not everyone agrees to just what that millennium looks like. And there are, in fact, three major or main views of the millennium. And that left side of your notes and your bulletin this morning largely is going to come from material gleaned from a Bible teacher named Mark Hitchcock. So um, if you ever read Mark Hitchcock, or you say, well, that looks familiar. Well, now you know why. Okay. And can I just say right from the get-go that one's view of the millennium is not a determination of one's biblical orthodoxy. All right? Are you with me on that? This is not an issue of salvation. This is an issue of eschatology where we're trying to discern what Revelation is talking about. All three of these views that I'm about to share with you, they agree that Jesus will return and that Jesus will reign. That's the important part. Uh, They just differ on the when and the how. So again, not a salvation issue, and it's important that we are very gracious toward one another. I have no doubt that in our congregation, all three of these views are represented, and uh, we're not going to kick you out of the church if you don't agree with me this morning, all right? So the first major view is known as amillennialism. Amillennialism. Now, when you put the prefix a in front of a word, what does it do? It negates the word. It negates the word. Um, so in this case, an amillennialist is one who does not believe in a literal 1,000-year physical reign of Christ on the earth. Instead, the amillennialist asserts that the church age in which we are currently living, we are living in the millennium. This is it. And as such, that, that phrase, "a 1,000 years, that we highlighted just a moment ago, it's, it's a symbol. It's symbolic of a long period of time, but not a literal 1,000 years. Also, according to this view, uh, when Scripture refers to the first resurrection, which we're going to talk about in in more detail later. You may have noticed that in our reading. The first resurrection, it's talking about a spiritual resurrection that happens in the hearts of people at conversion. And so, therefore, the kingdom that is spoken of here is a spiritual kingdom where Jesus reigns in the hearts of his people. All right, so that's amillennialism. Now, there's a very real sense in which the kingdom really is spiritual and present. Am I right? It is spiritual and present as King Jesus rules in our hearts. Jesus himself said that his kingdom is not of this world, and it is entered into by being born again. And so Jesus inaugurated the kingdom in his first coming, and he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we can kind of see where amillennialists land on that. But the kingdom is also physical and future when King Jesus will rule on the earth. And at that point, the kingdom will not just be inaugurated, it will be consummated. And here's the problem. We're not going to say it's a problem, but it's a challenge for us. We currently live in the tension between those two things, right? The tension of the kingdom being already because Jesus brought it, he inaugurated it, but it is not yet because it has not yet been fully consummated. The kingdom really is spiritual as he reigns and rules in our hearts, but the kingdom is also physical and he will reign on the earth. Amel focus on the already part of the kingdom. Again, it's here. We're living in it. It's the church age for an undefined period of time until Jesus returns. You all with me? All right, we're just a little bit technical this morning, but I think it's important that we kind of have a basic understanding of this. Now, one of the key components of amillennialism is that arrow right in the middle above the, the gold church age there. It says gradual societal decline, which means that even though Jesus is ruling and reigning in our hearts, things are going to get worse and worse in the world until Jesus comes back. After this undefined period of time, at which then there will be a literal, physical resurrection of the dead, followed by the judgment, and then eternity. So, again, that is amillennial, millennialism. Second is postmillennialism. This asserts that Jesus will return at the end of the millennium which will be established by the preaching of the gospel. And this has some things in common with amillennialism. So the chart looks very, very much the same. In both cases, the church age in which we are presently living is the millennium. This is it. And once again, a thousand years is not to be taken literally. It's symbolic of a long period of time. And like in amillennialism, when scripture refers to the first resurrection... It's referring to a spiritual resurrection that happens in our hearts at conversion. Therefore, the kingdom, once again, is a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of people. But here's the big difference between amillennialism and postmillennialism. The big difference is that while amillennialism teaches that things are going to get worse and worse and worse until Jesus returns, postmillennialism teaches that things are going to get better and better and better. Now, why? Well, There's, in fact, gradual societal improvement because the church will make it so. The church, in preaching the gospel, will Christianize the world and usher in the coming of Jesus to rule and reign. And so in that sense... In in post-millennialism, the church really brings or ushers in the kingdom. But something happened, or several somethings happened early in the 20th century that was a really strong blow to post-millennialism. What were some of those things? We had two world wars, didn't we? Brutality. We had the atomic bomb, didn't we? And now we have the Internet. So, um, proving that, that things are not... Getting better and better and better, if anything, they're getting worse and worse and worse. Humanity has invented all kinds of catastrophic ways to destroy each other and the planet. So that's a tough pill for post-millennialism. The third view, predictably, and in the one to which I subscribe, is pre-millennialism. It is the belief that Christ will return and set up his millennial kingdom on Earth. And reign over it for a thousand years. And this is not symbolic for a long period of time. This is a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on a physical earth, and it hasn't come yet. It looks something like this. So we have the gold bar, we have the church age. That's where we live now, but it is not the millennium. We know that the tribulation is coming after the rapture. After the tribulation, the seven years, there will be a second coming, at which point there will be what is called the first resurrection that we're going to talk about in a moment. Then the thousand-year reign of Christ after he comes in his second coming. And then the great white throne judgment with the second resurrection. And then the eternal state. We are currently living in this church age. And uh, Christ will return. And in this case, it's important to note who brings the kingdom here. Jesus does, as opposed to post-millennialism, where the church brings the kingdom. So, there are six reasons for premillennialism. And again, if you differ on this, let's not argue. Let's just agree that, hey, we see that differently. We're brothers and sisters, and um, we can absolutely live in harmony and in unity, even though we might not agree on this. So again, um, these six reasons come from Mark Hitchcock, and they follow the acrostic pre mill Premill, So P in Premill stands for the promises of God. The promises of God. And it's fascinating. If you were to walk through the Old Testament and look for promises that have to do with the coming kingdom of Jesus, there are many, many promises in the Old Testament that have not yet been fulfilled. Which begs the question, well, when are they going to be fulfilled? I believe the answer is they are going to be fulfilled largely in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ here on earth. For example, um, God promised to Abraham, he made eight promises to Abraham about land for Israel, boundaries which have not yet been fulfilled. When's that going to happen? Hasn't happened yet. We know that God is faithful and true. As we've studied the last few weeks, they must be fulfilled. Um, Also, God made promises to David about his throne and how it would be eternal. And that has not yet been fulfilled. So those are just a couple of examples of many, many promises in the Old Testament related, I believe, to fulfillment in the millennium. And there are many references listed there on your notes to which you can follow up and study. Um, Reason number two in pre-mill is resurrection. Resurrection. We alluded to this earlier, but let's look specifically at Revelation 20, verse 4. It says, And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, remember, amillennialists and postmillennialists, they take came to life, the sense of resurrection in verse 4, they take it as a spiritual resurrection. But what's the problem with that in this particular context? In, in context, resurrection is here referring to those who were faithful and martyred and beheaded because of their testimony as believers. That means that they had already had a spiritual resurrection. This is referring to their physical resurrection. Resurrection. So, came to life here only makes sense in context if it is a literal physical resurrection and part of a literal physical reign of Christ. And so, I know we're getting a little technical this morning, but y'all with me? All right, just not even if you're not, just do this and that'll make me I'll get through it quicker, okay? Reason number three it's the earliest view. It's the earliest view. If we take a look at um, this particular chart. Um, we've got people and, and And again, you're like, more terms. Why do I got to know more terms? Okay, hang with me. Kilias simply refer to people who believe in this literal thousand-year reign. But we've got people in the early church, early church fathers, Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, um, Victorinus. These all were Kilias. They believed in a literal, physical reign of Jesus Christ on the earth for a thousand years. And it wasn't until the 300s, the late 300s, that this guy Tychonius came along and he kind of championed this, Spiritualized symbolic view of the millennium, which was later adopted by Augustine and then spread widely from there. Now, of particular interest to me is Papias, because Papias had a relationship with the Apostle John. And if anyone would know, what John meant, when John talked about the millennium, you would think that someone who was tight with John would know, right? And Papias himself was Achilles. He believed in a literal thousand-year reign. So, reason number four, um, I think it's arguable that it's the most natural reading of the text. Throughout Revelation, John has used the phrase, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw, 32 times in the text. And typically, That phrase indicates the next event in a chronology or sequence. And in this particular case, John sees the next event in the prophetic timeline to be the millennial kingdom, a literal physical reign of a thousand years on the earth. Reason number five, and I think this is a a really profound one, the incarceration of Satan. Again, Pastor Travis is going to hit this hard with you next week. Talk about the incarceration, talk about Satan after the thousand years being let loose. But we learned last week that Satan is bound for a thousand years during the millennial reign of Christ. Which means that if you are an amillennialist or a postmillennialist, what must you say about Satan right now? He's bound right now, he's incarcerated. But what does Scripture teach us about what Satan is able to do right now? 1 Peter 5.8, he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Doesn't sound incarcerated to me in terms of what Satan is able to do in the church age. And how about just from our own personal experience, right? So it it sure doesn't seem like Satan is bound. And if you're an amillennialist or postmillennialist and you read this passage and it talks about how Satan is bound for the thousand years during the millennium, he must be bound now. So in light of the incarceration of Satan in Revelation 20, 1-3, it only makes sense that the 1,000-year liter- reign of Christ is literal and physical here on the earth. Reason number six, the last one, literal 1,000 years. As I noted earlier, 1,000 years is specifically mentioned six times in verses 1-7 through 7 of Revelation 20. If it were meant to be symbolic... I just think God would have generically said, after a long time, and maybe said it once, maybe twice, but six times in these seven verses for it to be emphasized, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, um, I, I think that... Is meant for a reason to teach us and to show us that this is a physical, literal 1,000 years. So let me again reiterate that there are b- b- our fellow faithful believers, brothers and sisters, who see this differently, and uh, we just need to give each other a lot of grace where we disagree on issues like this. There are other issues, salvation kinds of issues, uh, Christology issues, where, yeah, we need to part company at times where that goes against orthodoxy. This is not one of those issues. So, with that in mind, let's move to the right side of your notes in your bulletin. And uh, this passage can be broken down into two main parts. Verses 1 through 3, Satan will be bound, which we touched briefly on last week. And again, Pastor Travis will attack that with you in verses 7 through 10 next week. And then Jesus will reign in verses 4 through 6. And what we want to do today is answer two specific questions about this reign. Question number one is, who are these who will reign with Christ during the millennium? And how many resurrections are there? Because these were actually, as I read the passage, two things that caused me to scratch my head a little bit and say, what's that talking about? So let's go back to verse four. Verse four says, then I saw thrones, John says, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. So again, the question being, who are they? Who are these who will reign with Christ during the millennium? In Scripture, if we look at the full counsel of God, it indicates that there are, in fact, four groups who will reign with Christ during the millennium. And we can probably also trace this back to, we talked about, well, who is coming back with Jesus in this army that's coming with him? Very similarly, just as there were four divisions in the army, there are four groups who will reign with Christ during the millennium. I've included some references for your notes for you to go back and take a look at, but right now I'm just going to briefly tell you that number one, part of those who will reign are the Old Testament believers in Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. Also, those who will be reigning with Christ during the millennium will be the apostles, as it says in Matthew 19, 28. Also, predictably and very excitingly, the church, you and I, will be part of those who will reign with Christ during the millennium, 2 Timothy 2.12 and some other passages as well. And then also deceased tribulation believers, those who came to know Christ during the tribulation, they died whether martyred or natural causes, they will rule and reign with Christ during the millennium. So in short, I think it's fair to say this includes all believers deceased or raptured prior to Christ's return at the end of the tribulation and prior to the millennium. So Um, what does that practically look like? You know, when it says that, hey, we get to be a part of this. We're going to reign with Christ during the millennium. What exactly does that mean? And I don't really know, to be honest with you. Um, I do think it has something to do with us living out our lives in our glorified state at that point. All across the globe. And enforcing the righteous values of Christ's kingdom. So um, it's going to be a wonderful time where the earth is pure and pristine, and we get to live out the values of the kingdom. Just imagine, just, just like in that MacArthur quote that I read earlier, we get to live that out. And I think that in part is what it means for us to rule and reign with Jesus, is to enforce the values of the kingdom wherever he plants us. Which, interestingly, is kind of our job right now too, isn't it? Right? So, um, the second question raised in the second half of verse 4 is this. How many resurrections are there? I mean, it was about um, in the second half of verse 4, it says, And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Again, I'm scratching my head. And then in verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Um, Again, admittedly, that could be a little confusing. Well, um, let's, let's unravel this ball of, of yarn potentially. And um, by the way, isn't there also a resurrection at the rapture? Right? And so how, wh- how do we make sense of this? How many resurrections are there? The simple answer is two. Simple answer is two. There are two resurrections. Jesus described them in John chapter 5, verse 28. Jesus said this. He said, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who were in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good, to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so two general, broad resurrections, one to life, one to death or judgment. Resurrection one, the resurrection of life. Resurrection two, the resurrection of death. But here's where the confusion comes in as we, you know, again, factor in the rapture. And then we factor in the end of the tribulation, the prior to the millennium. Resurrection one has two phases. The resurrection to life has two phases. And here's what I mean. Um, Phase one of the resurrection to life happens prior to the tribulation and is the resurrection of the church. All right, so we are caught up with the Lord in the air. There's the resurrection of the church at that particular point, phase one of the resurrection of life. Phase two of the resurrection of life happens at the end of the tribulation and is the resurrection of the Old Testament saints and deceased tribulation saints. So as it's talking about the first resurrection in this passage, we have to keep in mind that there are two phases to this. Phase two happens at the end of the tribulation and is the resurrection of the Old Testament saints and deceased tribulation saints. So this is the first resurrection being referred to in verses four and six of chapter 20 that we are reading. That is the resurrection of life in two phases, one prior to the tribulation and one at the end. All right, y'all with me? I know, we're we're pretty technical. Who said no? Again, you're supposed to lie. (laughs) You're supposed to lie. All right. Two broad resurrections. We're all going to be resurrected. It's a question of when. And will it be to life or will it be to death? So, and that's where resurrection two comes into play, the resurrection of death or judgment. And at this resurrection, all unbelievers will be raised for judgment, the great white throne judgment, and cast into the lake of fire. And that is what is called the second death. So again, generally speaking, you're going to be raised to life or you're going to be raised to judgment and death. And that is dependent upon, uh, is Jesus Christ your Savior and Lord? And the, which phase of the resurrection of life you're a part of depends on, are you part of the church who is raised at the rapture, or are you an Old Testament saint or a tribulation, the deceased tribulation saint, they will be raised at the end of the tribulation. So, hopefully that makes it clear as mud, right? All right. That's why it says in verse six, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, the resurrection of life. Whether you're raised at the rapture, whether you are raised as an Old Testament saint or as one who is a tribulation saint. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death, which refers again to that those, the great white throne judgment and those who are judged to eternity in the lake of fire, has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So the second death is a reference to the lake of fire. So those are those two questions. Hopefully that's a little bit clearer for you as you read that this morning. Who are these who will reign with Christ during the millennium? How many resurrections are there? Let's transition into application and ask the question, how should we then live? Again, the Bible isn't about just giving you more information. It's not about just filling you and puffing you up. It's about how do we take this information and turn it into obedience? I mentioned earlier that amillennialists and postmillennialists can be guilty of focusing on the already to the neglect of the not yet aspect of the kingdom. Again, for them, um, the kingdom is now, the millennium is now because the Holy Spirit reigns in our hearts and it is a spiritual kingdom, and so we must fulfill the millennium now. Premillennialists have their own shortcomings. And here's the shortcoming of the premillennialist like me. Premillennialists can be guilty of focusing on the not yet to the neglect of the already. Let me let you think about that for a second. Premillennialists can be guilty of focusing on the not yet, the future kingdom, the physical reign of Jesus Christ, to the neglect of the already the spiritual reign of Jesus Christ in our hearts. We can become so future-focused that we lose sight of our kingdom responsibilities here in the present. Remember, the kingdom is inaugurated. It is already. But it is also yet to be consummated. It is not yet. We tend to err as premillennialists often on neglecting the reality of the physical, the, the, the reality of the spiritual kingdom today. The call that Jesus makes for us to live like kingdom people here and now is undeniable. It's not just for someday and the sweet by and by, but it is right here, right now, by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so we need to ask ourselves the questions, what does it mean to be already people when it comes to the kingdom? We kind of get the not yet part, the future part, and we long for that. But let us not neglect the right here, right now dimension of God's spiritual kingdom as he rules and reigns in our hearts. Jesus most thoroughly describes what it means to live as already people, as kingdom people in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. But let me warn you, if you go in search of what it means to be kingdom people in the Sermon on the Mount, what he describes for our lives is not business as usual. It is not a life of passivity. It is not a life of going with the flow. It is a, an intensely, dramatically, counter-cultural life that goes against the flow and will likely earn you many, many enemies and cost you greatly in terms of sacrifice. It is a radical life. And he calls us to that kind of living today countercultural, dangerous and sacrificial. And here's why I think this is so important. If we want people to believe in the coming future kingdom, and we do, right? Then we must give evidence of what its existence, of its existence here in the present. Let me say that again. If we want people to believe in the coming future kingdom, Then we must give evidence of its existence here in the present. People are not going to buy into some future reign of Jesus on the earth if they don't see the reign of Jesus in our hearts. And hearts where Jesus reigns are radically different than the world. The values are different, the speech is different, the thinking is different. The way we handle money is different. The way we engage people is different. The way that we post on social media is different. And so we're going to talk a lot about this. What, what, what is this kingdom living in the present? What is it like beginning September 12th in a new sermon series called The Fullness of Life? From John chapter 10, verse 10, I think when Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, I believe he's talking about this already nature of kingdom living here in the present. That we as premillennialists, those of us who are, we often neglect our kingdom responsibilities, our kingdom calling in the here and now. So, my question for you this morning, I think, is, is, you know, A, Where do you find yourself on that chart? Are you a pre, ah, post, and again, um, interesting discussion. It's not a salvation issue, but where do you find yourself? And then which side do you tend to neglect? Do you tend to be neglectful of the, the coming and future kingdom and rule and reign of Jesus? Or are you neglectful, perhaps, of the spiritual reign of Jesus in your heart today, the already part of the kingdom? Because that is what is absolutely essential for people to buy into the soon and coming return of our Savior. So let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for its challenge and for the fact that we've made it this far. Um, God, we look forward to what you have in store in the remaining um, chapters in the book of Revelation. I pray for Pastor Travis next week as he um, delves into his first sermon here at FBC and just look forward to all that you've laid on his heart um, in the past several weeks as he has prepared. But God, make us here at First Baptist, would you make us kingdom people in the here and now? As we read the Sermon on the Mount and other passages where Jesus describes for us what his kingdom is like, may we not just dismiss that and say, well, that's for somebody else. That's not for me. It's there because it is for us. And it is admittedly difficult to live out in this culture, in this context, but God, it is such the key to what it is to experience fullness of life and to live the kind of lives that are compelling and capture the attention of a lost world who is very skeptical of the message of the return of Jesus in the future. God, would you make us powerful evangelists because we are kingdom people today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.